www.justiceradio.org. This is Jaime Catter. This is Mal Bernstein. I'm a retired civil rights lawyer, having worked on racial equalities, civil liberties, anti-war, and employment cases. When I was last on the local board, KPFA was a flourishing place for progressives to get news. Now we see programs cut, a static or reduced listener base, a financially sinking KPFA, a local board mired in a bitter relationship with a beleaguered staff, and KPFA used as a cash cow for Pacifica. I and the entire Save KPFA slate will work to change that distressing reality. Both for Mal Bernstein and the Save KPFA slate. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book on cover to cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Eddie Muller, an expert on film noir and on noir in general. Most recently, the author of a short story in a collection published by a press that I'd never heard of called Akashic Books, titled San Francisco Noir, author of two novels, The Distance and The Shadow Boxer, a Billy Nichols novel. The hero is a boxing writer based on Eddie Muller's father. Also the co-author of Tab Hunter Confidential, but pretty much known for the work in the field of noir, the author of The Art of Noir, a large format book of posters published by Overlook, Dark City Dames, The Wicked Women of Film Noir, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, Grindhouse, The Forbidden World of Adults Only Cinema, organizer of festivals, former print journalist, occasional filmmaker. Let's start first by talking about noir. I got into a discussion with someone not long ago concerning whether a movie called The Sweet Smell of Success was a noir. <laughs> and I said, well, kind of maybe. And yet Eddie Muller says, yes, it is. And then we broaden it and we look at the art of noir. And even though it was my feeling noir came out and began in the late 40s in Hollywood, there are films from the 30s listed in the art of noir. So I'm starting to get this idea, and then we've got neo-noir, and I'm starting to get this idea that there's kind of a loose definition around here. What, what are we talking about exactly? <laughs> well, this has become my new career, is, is attempting to explain this. Yeah, loose is one word I always say. It's, it can be very elastic. And it's interesting, at the introduction, when you said Eddie writes about film noir and noir in general, I think that's a very important distinction to make. Things are a little tighter when you discuss the idea of film noir because it really is or was an organic artistic movement uh, that really does have a beginning period and an end period. And then you can see its antecedents in the 1930s and its progeny in the 1960s and 70s and, and neo-noir and all that. Uh, but film noir is pretty set. It started really at the at the beginning of the 1940s. And what would it, be the first film noir then? Well, I mean, that is debatable. For the purposes of the book I wrote, Dark City, I said the first verifiable film noir that had the visual look and style is a film called Stranger on the Third Floor that was made at RKO in 1940, right? But okay. it's a B picture, and it's just the picture where you can really see all the elemental 
stuff that would become identifiable as you know the iconography of noir but the same year citizen kane is made and citizen kane is a far more influential movie than stranger on the third floor in terms of noir as well you know how it shaped the filmmaking style of the decade to come when did it end you know people because they see a beginning point there's like a need to put an end point on it it ended not because of all of the the factors that contributed to its growth i think people tend to overlook economic reasons and cultural reasons why it would end it's not like the film suddenly weren't talking about the same subjects they were just doing it in a slightly different style for a number of reasons i mean it ended a lot of people think with they they want to say touch of evil is the last noir film or odds against tomorrow is the, or sweet smell of success might be the last noir film the reality is noir really moved to television because the movies didn't have use for black and white crime melodramas any longer once they had introduced widescreen and technicolor and all this to keep people coming to the theaters you know as opposed to staying home and watching television television of the 1950s was tailor-made for noir stories small short dramas with tiny casts set in hotel rooms and bars shot in black and white they hadn't figured out color television yet and then in that sense perhaps you could call dragnet there are people who argue that Dragnet is noir, and I, I tend to argue the opposite point, that it really isn't noir because it's about the cops. Ah. And, and I see noir as being very much about the people who commit the crimes and who are the wrongdoers. And this, to me, has become a very essential part of the definition, especially when you look at it in a broader framework than just the movies and the style of the movies. When you talk about content, it has a lot to do with who's the protagonist and what's their motivation. Well, in that sense, I guess... If you're looking at the golden age of noir, which would be, say, 1946 through 55, the first half of that, you have people uh, like Lester Cole, John Garfield, Jules Dassin, Abraham Polanski working in noir. All of these people were on the left, and that produces some kind of political argument about the nature of noir and its relation to politics. I totally agree. I think that the political situation in in Hollywood is a huge factor in why noir existed when it did. Because they were lower budget films, because they were genre pictures, the studio heads let things go that they might not have been looking at as closely. And I think a lot of people with political agendas said, you know, we can we can actually put stuff in these pictures that address certain social issues. Basically, having to do with the haves and have-nots. I mean, it had a lot to do with class struggle. And then when the war ended, a lot of noir pictures focused on returning soldiers who had done the culture a great service through their sacrifice but couldn't get a break at home. And so that became a big issue. And I think you see... Somebody like a Polanski or a Lester Cole, the writers, definitely using crime stories in a way to make a political statement. Then at the end of that era, right when noir reached its critical mass, which was like 4950, not coincidentally when the HUAC witch hunt reaches critical mass, 
that's when you see a lot of crime thrillers start to go the other way and take a very right-wing view of crime stories, which is the criminal is a cancer and a virus, and it needs to be wiped out. And that brings us back to Dragnet, which is exactly when Dragnet started. Jack Webb was sort of looking at what was happening with film noir, and he was involved in a picture called He Walked by Night, which is like almost definitive film noir. And out of that, he said, oh, I get the whole thing. I get the style. I get the docudrama of it all. But I'm just going to make it about a tough cop who roots out the crooks and, you know, removes them from normal society. Andy Muller, the word, the phrase film noir, you define it in art of noir, where it came from. It's obviously from the French, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is from French. Although at this point, I think I'm waiting for it to end up in, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary as its own separate entity from you know, the French noir just meaning black. And its roots really came from a festival of film that was held in Paris at the end of World War II, after the liberation. And the French, who are the greatest cinema-loving people on the face of the earth, were so thrilled at having Hollywood movies back in Paris that they held like a huge festival that was showing 365 days of Hollywood movies. And that's when some very uh, observant critics realized, you know, there's a difference in the films now. And it had everything to do with European filmmakers who had fled Europe with the rise of the Nazis, had started working in Hollywood, and produced a darker, more pessimistic type of film. When that got back to Europe, Every, they noticed this this change, the optimism that Hollywood was selling to help the country get through the Depression had been replaced by this more worldly, pessimistic view. Did people in Hollywood have a name for this new type of post-war film? Absolutely well, not. Oh, they didn't even <laughs> notice that it existed. No, they noticed it, but yeah. they just didn't name it. A lot of these began as B-movies, and B-movie is a specific term that you and I are old enough to understand, but maybe <laughs> others are not. What is a B-movie? Well, a B-film was a, a less expensive product of the studio, a short film that was used to round out the bottom half of a double bill in the theaters. And this is a whole other aspect of, of the movie business that a lot of people don't understand, how the studios also very often owned the theaters in which the films were being shown. So they had a B unit that made short, terse, inexpensive product. And, and crime films and a lot of noir films definitely fall into that category. And you can tell a B-movie generally today because you don't recognize the names. They're black and white, and they're like 65 minutes long. And there, yes, and there's a lot of static camera work <laughs> because, because it was risky to move the camera. If the take was no good, it was a waste. So they, they very rarely move the camera in a B-film. Well, what do you think is the greatest of the B-movies? Well, in terms of film noir, the one that everybody points to is Detour, Edgar Ulmer's Detour, which, you know, legend has it was made in six days. But I think now we've done enough research to realize that Ulmer was selling that legend and it was actually uh, a more realistic shooting schedule. But just the pervasive sense of doom and fatalism that's in that film for all 68 minutes of it is pretty extraordinary. But there's a lot of B movies that I and other, you know, people who are, are into of this are digging up these days that are, are forgotten and it's uh it's pretty fascinating how much good stuff is out there especially a lot of filmmakers that would go on to a-list pictures 
who were cutting their teeth, so to speak, in that. It seems that, you know, a parallel track is people are discovering these great early TV shows of similar right. sort from the 50s. Exactly, exactly. Like, they didn't realize, like, Playhouse 90. I mean, all those guys who went on to become very successful filmmakers, and this is Sidney Lumet and John Frankenheimer and Arthur Penn, they were all directing television in the, in the early to mid-50s. Well, Eddie Muller, let's get back now to, to what is noir or film noir. Now, you mentioned a, f a film from 1940, so let's go back to that film. What elements in that prototypical early film define film noir? Okay, well, that was Stranger on the Third Floor. And the thing, that, in terms of the theme, the protagonist is a man who believes he has done a great misservice by naming someone as a killer who may not be guilty after all and sending an innocent man to the chair. His guilty conscience is depicted on screen through the most elaborate types of what can only be called you know, German expressionist. It really is a, a trip inside the head of a guilty person. The visual look is so incredibly strong. It helps that Peter Lorre is in the film, and he's almost bringing that European darkness and pessimism right to Hollywood and like scampering through this movie as a symbol of now there's going to be a, a European virus in, <laughs> in Hollywood and he's it and Peter Lorre embodies it so that's really why that film is so very noir as opposed to say a film from the same year that you know I, I include in the noir canon uh, the Maltese Falcon right? which you know is really a detective story and depicts a somewhat noir world. This is a corrupt world and everybody's out for themselves. That's a staple of human existence in the noir universe. But it, there, the guilty consciousness and the, the dark foreboding atmosphere isn't as prevalent in the Maltese Falcon. These filmmakers had no money so they used shadow and light. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting. I've done enough research in this now and had the good fortune of going back and interviewing people who were involved in the creation of the films, going through production files, to know that a lot of the theories about noir are kind of just that. I mean, there is a practical side to all of this that you just touched on. We don't have any money. The sets look like nothing. <laughs> so let's hire John Alton, a brilliant cinematographer, to come in and make this picture look dramatic and look like something. And when Alton, who shot a lot of B movies, when he was working on these films, he was the highest paid member of the cast or crew. Alton got more money than the actors in the films because they knew he's going to create something really, really striking and it's not going to cost a lot of money because he was so fast when he did it. Well, what about the editor? How important was the editor? There were a number of editors in the 40s, like I'm thinking of Robert Parrish, who edited Body and Soul and won an Oscar for it, who went on to become a director in the 50s and made a lot of what I would call noir films in the early 50s. Uh, and Don Siegel, who went on to become a very successful director, started out as an editor. But in the 40s, you see noir films are much more influenced by the art directors and cinematographers than they are by the editing. But 
But then in the 50s, that changes because a lot of men like Mark Robeson, Robert Wise, Don Siegel, Phil Carlson, a much more American influence in that the speed and the pace of the film becomes more important than the visual look of the film. You're listening to an interview with Eddie Muller, who's a noir expert who has a short story in the brand new collection, San Francisco Noir, edited by Peter Maravellis, published by Akashic Books. Eddie Muller, in Art of Noir, you you make a breakdown. Uh, I mean, Art of Noir deals with the posters, but at the same time, you're discussing the films themselves. Mm -hmm, So there's a breakdown of certain topics. Let me throw out some elements of noir that I've noticed and others have noticed and give a little history of the origins of these aspects. One is... Flashbacks within flashbacks. Uh, we see it in Out of the Past, but a few years ago I was turned on to an amazing movie called The Locket. Yes, has, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> which is so many flashbacks <laughs> that you kind of get lost, and it's in a way dizzying. reminds me yeah. of Inception, which does yeah. similar things with yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That That's interesting you say that, because when I showed The Locket a few years ago, Chris Nolan had just made Memento. Right. And I said, okay, if you think this is some groundbreaking thing, where do you see the locket? You won't be able to keep track of where you are in this film. If you're asking where did the flashback concept begin, I don't really know. I mean, in literature, it's been there all sure. along. Again, I'm going to point to, just because it's very handy and it's so obvious in a way, I'm going to point to Citizen Kane, which is one long flashback. I mean, it really is flashbacks within flashbacks, and it's a detective story. There's a man who walks through the film trying to learn the truth. You know, what is Rosebud, and what does it mean to this guy? So it's very much structured like a classic detective story, which a lot of noir films were. And I really think that that film had a huge impact on the people who made noir films in the 40s. I think Kane is is the most influential movie ever made, really, after Birth of a Nation, which was just rudimentary film grammar. Then Wells came along and said, well, I'm going to show you sophisticated film grammar. You know, it, it had a huge impact on everybody. And then when, when Billy Wilder did Double Indemnity, you know, and it gets nominated for five Oscars, and it's a flashback, then it's like fair game. Now we're going to do this. And, and after that, like, everything became structured as a flashback. It was a great framing device and, and very, very sophisticated. But the locket, that is amazing. <laughs> Eddie Muller, let's go back a couple of other things. Sure. Femme fatales. Where does that come from? I mean, aside ages, from ages old, yeah. I mean, really. But you know, within the context of noir. A lot of people have come to assume that they're synonymous, that noir and the femme fatale are synonymous. And I cannot tell you how often people say, oh, those are the movies where the woman destroys the man, as as though that's the premise of the films, which I, I do not agree with whatsoever. I don't even think that's the premise of Double Indemnity, which is the one that everybody cites. However, I do think that You know, the femme fatale is an important character in a lot of these movies. There are examples of film noir that have a homme fatale, where it's the last man the woman should ever meet, but she's sexually attracted to him, and she will do the wrong thing for that guy. What movie is that? Well, there's right off the top of my head, there's a picture called Raw Deal, where Dennis O'Keefe, there are two women who basically fight over the criminal who's out to get revenge, and the good girl ends up shooting people for this bad boy. It's pretty classic. But the thing about the femme fatale that I think has been understated 
is the class aspect of it. Really, these are stories about women who don't want to work for a living. And that really defines the femme fatale. And in noir, it's specific because she is always, always in these movies balanced against the good woman who is depicted as a self-sufficient woman who can fend for herself in modern society. She has a job. She works. She's a nurse. She's a fashion designer. She works in the publishing industry. But the femme fatale always is a woman who wants something for nothing. And she's going to use the man to get it. So there's a real class issue with this subject, as well as a sex issue. What about the idea of the tough detective? Did that really start with uh, with Hammett? Well, you know, I think that the tough detective is an outgrowth of another American tradition of the frontiersman, you know, and the pathfinder, Fenimore Cooper, and all that stuff. But Hammett really brought it into the big city. And because Hammett had a background as really working as a detective, he gave it a veracity that nobody else could touch and it was hugely influential. A very important distinction for me between detective fiction and noir is that the detective is always going to prevail in detective fiction. But in noir, he does not, like in Out of the Past. I mean, here's a detective who screws everything up. I mean, he falls for the woman, he betrays his employer, he ends up killing his partner, and he ends up dead. So, <laughs> I mean, that is a noir story. It just so happens that the guy is a detective, as opposed to Philip Marlowe and Ross MacDonald and all these guys who basically, at the end of the story, they go back to the the office in their bottle, and they complain that the world is still a corrupt place, even though I have solved this case. That's... You know, it's kind of a noir thing, but it's a detective story. So Big Sleep on some level is not quite noir. The movie is a screwball comedy, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like Howard Hawks took all the window dressing of noir and said, but we're just going to have fun with this. I mean, you cannot take that film seriously as a, as a statement on anything. I mean, it, it's just a fun movie. Another thing that comes up, and we see it more, I think, these days in... I wouldn't even call them neo-noirs. They're kind of post-noirs like Sin City or the Broadway musical City of Angels. Mm -hmm. The voiceover. Well, the voiceover was a tremendous device in its time. And it really was done because these writers, Hammett, Chandler particularly, had created this new, very vivid form of vernacular speech in American writing and it was just hugely popular I mean nobody nobody wrote that stuff better than Raymond Chandler it became popular in films in noir films because it's like we have to include this this is an essential part of the story and it was funny because you know some of Chandler's early stories were adapted as B films and they did, had none of the flavor of Chandler because they didn't realize they bought the books and they thought the plots were what was good about them it was only when they made Murder My Sweet that they realized it's Chandler's voice. It's the voiceover of Philip Marlowe that is so great. And that was the genius of Billy Wilder when he made Double Indemnity. James M. Cain does not have that voice. He is very cut and dried, straightforward. 
Chandler has the music and the voice, and he hired Chandler to write the screenplay with him, and that's what is so memorable about that film, among other things. But the the voiceover is phenomenal. Well, the voiceover, Billy Wilder, makes it even more phenomenal in a film like Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> because your protagonist <laughs> is speaking from beyond the grave, you know, <laughs> which was a great conceit used, of course, uh, in American Beauty, the Oscar-winning Best Picture American Beauty. That was the exact same concept. You have a list on your website of the top 25 more films. It's eddiemuller.com, and uh, I'm planning to use it in conjunction with Fine. Netflix to fill in a few of the gaps. As, as long as you realize that it's a totally subjective oh, sure. list on my part. I do, and, and I consciously didn't want to say these are the best or these are the most influential. These are my favorite films because I can continue to watch these movies over and over and always find something to enjoy about them, which to me is a is a distinction of a great... You list Sunset Boulevard as number three. Yeah. And I've watched that film <laughs> three times a year, easily. Really, you know? really. The number two film on there is Crisscross, which is a fairly unknown film. I mean, unless you're uh, an aficionado. Yeah, I think you have to kind of be an aficionado, but... I listed it because when I wrote my first book on noir, I had probably seen Criss Cross two or three times. And it seemed like an almost great movie. But since I wrote that book ten years ago, I've seen that film another dozen times. And it gets better every time I see it. I see more depth to it and more interesting things in the direction and the performances. So it's like, you know, this is really a lot better than I had thought. And it's funny because I met a man uh, in France last year who was like the foremost scholar in the world on Robert Siadmak, who directed that film. I was there doing something with Noir, and he just looked at me and he said, and what, in your opinion, is Siadmek's best film? And, I, and you know, it's like, whoops, I'm on the spot now. <laughs> I said, well, I think it's, it's probably Crisscross, and he said, it is unquestionably Crisscross. Is that available also on DVD now? I think it is, yeah. Okay. One thing that I kind of got obsessed with over the past decade are foreign noirs, which you don't cover in Art of Noir. And I'm thinking that I've become a, a, an addict for the films of Jacques Becker and mm -hmm. Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, certainly early in its pre-noir, but if you look at the early genre noir films, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of noir there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he did the original... Uh what became Scarlet Street in this country, La Chienne, he did uh, like, what, 33 or something in France? Yeah. In your studies, how do you compare those kinds of foreign wars with what came out in America or what is coming out in America? I think it is an international phenomenon. I think it's taken us a long time to realize it and to not be so american-centric in our view of this you know hollywood is the capital of the world you know berlin was the film capital of the world at one point and a lot of the directors that we now think of as the premier noir stylists came mm. out of that school you know the ufa studio i think the big difference in them and everybody does it a little differently and you know richard this is a this is where i want to go with this subject now is really taking it international my goal is to do an international noir f festival that shows people that it wasn't like america just influenced these other people these other countries were making these films contemporaneous with hollywood the difference as i see it is the language that is something that no other country in the world 
has proven to be the equal of, as far as I'm concerned. I don't speak all these other languages, so I'm not privy to the subtlety of what they're doing in Italian or something. But it seems to me that when I travel around the world and I talk to people in these countries, the thing that they love about the American style is the language, is the the toughness of it, the the slang. There's something about the way that's done in America that isn't done in other countries. I'd argue maybe a little bit for a movie like Le Cirque Rouge. Yeah, which, which I absolutely love. Melville feels it more than a lot of other filmmakers. But I don't think you would argue that it's what he takes out of American culture that he is really adept at putting into his films. I mean, you've seen Two Men in Manhattan, you know, and it's like, I mean, he's an Americanophile, if there is such a word, you know. Yeah, the Cirque Rouge is great. Eddie Muller, your next film festival? Uh, January 21st of 2011 in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. I don't know who's listening to this, but there will be a Noir City Festival. There's one right now happening in Chicago. There will be one in late October in Washington, D.C., and I think this year we're even going to do a Christmas noir show in San Francisco at the Castro. Just to prove that you can do Christmas and noir together. You've been listening to an interview with Eddie Muller, whose latest piece of work is a short story in a collection called San Francisco Noir. I believe Tab Hunter Confidential is out and about. Uh, the Art of Noir is uh, available from Overlook. And I guess if you look, you could find the other works as well. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Open Book is produced by Richard Walensky in the studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. Tune in to Full Circle this Friday, August 20th at 7 p.m. to hear about the ways in which theater is being used by multiracial communities to heal, educate, and create safe spaces. The Ping Chung Company will join us in conversation about their ongoing creative efforts that explore intersections of race, culture, history, art, and media in the modern world. We'll also be hearing from Amita Swadin, educator, anti-violence activist, artist, and mastermind behind the project, Secret Survivors, a theatrical response to incest. 